0: My guest today is Professor Philip Lebel, who's emeritus professor of economics at Montclair State University. His research spans um, drivers of economic growth and management of risk. Welcome, Phil. Thank you. Uh, I didn't ask you, do you go by Phil or Philip? Philip. Philip? Yes. Okay. Uh, so, so I want to start with one of your older papers, uh, 2007, the role of creative innovation in economic growth, some international comparisons. Uh, you say export-driven policies in East Asia have thus far produced dramatic increases in real per capita income. At the same time, sustainable growth requires that technological innovation proceed at comparable rates if mutual gains from globalization are to be realized. So, so you have you have a, a pattern regression model in the paper um, uh, by by East Asia, which countries
1: uh, do you uh, focus on? I, uh, I I haven't pulled up all that sample with me, but the the paper actually lists them. So I think it's uh, it's China, it's South Korea, it's Japan, Thailand, India. Um, I think also uh, Philippines, India. Uh, excuse me, Indonesia. So some of the major economies, let's say of uh, East and South Asia, uh, right. drawing, for example, right. and. I, I would just you know, offer a qualifier in saying whenever you aggregate across a geographic region, of course, you obscure some of the differences that exist among countries, not only at a policy level, but also at the empirical level. So uh, I just was trying to capture, to the extent that I could, any meaningful sets of uh, trends and patterns that would emerge from that.
0: Yeah. And and the goal here is to look at how innovation uh, is really driving or how innovation is sort of interacting with export policies, right? So, so what do what, what do you find from the regression?
1: Uh, well, the point that I was making is that when you have risk and we probably should talk about that somewhere in this conversation, uh, I'm using a measure of aggregate country risk, which is both political, it's economic, it's environmental and uh, financial. And when you have larger aggregate risk uh, that's in play, it tends to inhibit a lot of innovation. Some people like to think of this in Schumpeterian terms and saying, well, uh, Schumpeter always was a disruptor. That's the, the the kind of the buzzword that we see today, being a disruptive technology, for example. But uh, I, I think the evidence says that when you have aggregate risk at a very large level, it inhibits uh, innovation, it inhibits investment. Um, there's no such thing as a, a riskless environment, that's for sure. Uh, but the point is that when aggregate risk is at such a high level, it really tends to inhibit the level of innovation that could be taking place. Now, risk alone doesn't do it. Uh, I mean, if you want me to continue with this, I could say yeah, that, yeah. It depends on institutions, for example. And the whole point of that paper and the uh, paper that I wrote on Africa is to talk about the role of uh, basically property rights and an independent judiciary as managing risk. And when a country, for example, has its governance institutions heavily um, overweighted, if you will, or intervened by a political institution for purely political purposes, it tends to also uh, cause greater risk uh, for people to make a decision because it becomes uncertain. You, You just don't know whether it's an authoritarian or a democratic regime, that it's going to promote the level of innovation. It can be too cherry. I mean, we, we could cite some current examples, but I'll just put that aside and say, that's the finding that I was coming up with.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so th- this was in 2007. <laughs> this was before all our health broke loose uh, in the financial markets. Yeah. Um, but uh, so when you, when you think about aggregate risk though, um, clearly if you don't have stable governments if you don't have stable expectations of future regimes right. i guess mm-hmm. uh, then you can't really invest into innovation so uncertainty always dampens innovation right
1: yes absolutely
0: and so um so so you looked at this country sort of in a in a in a package uh, but did you find differences among them or is it not something that you looked at
1: I did not try, because I was using uh, panel regression for, in this case, emphasizing East Asia countries. Uh, But I I should say that some of the research that I have done is aggregating groups uh, broader than East Asia. I mean, I have a a sample that I wrote the the paper on Africa on, for example. Uh, Then I have one in Central and Latin America. Then I have European countries. And with each of them, I'm trying to come up with some notion of how risk inhibits or promotes uh, growth and how that mechanism takes place. Does it take place as I certainly suggest in the East Asia paper through trade, uh, export-led growth, or are there other mechanisms where it begins to unfold?
0: And so you have some policy implications here. Um, so, so I'm uh, going back to the East Asia paper. Um, so, so what are you concluding from the paper from a policy perspective? What kind of what? from a policy perspective. So how should countries manage um, this aggregate risk? Uh, how should they be managing it if, if they want if they want innovation to-
1: Yeah, I, I point to one obvious thing, which is establish a clear regime on, on property rights and make sure that your, your judiciary is independent. When I say independent, I mean, if you have a commercial code, for example, and you're saying, okay, someone comes up with a, an invention, they wanna get a copyright or a trademark or something on, make sure that your judiciary is able to defend that. And not only within your country, but also that gives it credibility in defending it abroad. Uh, you know, there was a time when, uh, just to take a little, little perspective on time here, you know, Japan was being accused of, uh, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, of just imitating things from the West, you know, and not paying any attention to copyright laws. And people are making the same accusation now about China. Well, what was interesting about Japan is that as soon as Japan realized that their innovations could be uh, absconded off with by somebody else, all of a sudden, they became great defenders of property rights, and so what I'm talking about is the, the reciprocity of property rights uh, as being mutually beneficial to all the parties that are concerned for that. And uh, it's a hard lesson. So I mean right now people are saying, "Well, look at what China's doing, and you know, they want to beat up on China." But my answer is that China's going through a transition itself, and that it will come to appreciate that when it sees its own innovations are being uh, basically absconded off by somebody else.:
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it seems obvious, right? Without intellectual property rights, you cannot really get robust innovation. Uh, I know a little bit about this, uh, Philip. I, I grew up in India, mm-hmm. and um, there is sort of a, another implication here. I don't know if it's in the paper or not. Uh, maybe I, I want to get your perspective on this. So uh, India, for example, there's a lot of the pharmaceuticals manufacturing. Yes. And, it has been sort of very lax in terms of property rights and compliance. Uh, and it seems to me, looking back, such a regime actually uh, doesn't allow the country to move up the value, value curve. So, you know, they have been very good at, you know, sort of uh, raw material production, intermediates, um, and those types of things. But haven't really moved up the the curve in terms of real innovation. Uh, do you see that uh, that that an issue?
1: Well, I mean, we could invoke uh, Walt Rostow's stages of economic growth uh, in this, I suppose, you know, and, and say that yes, at one point, an early stage when a country is is uh, opening up its economy, let's say, both internally and potentially externally. Um, a lot of the innovation is imitative and it becomes derivative because what you're really doing is you're taking applied technologies that have been demonstrated in the marketplace and you're looking at how they become commercialized in a broader environment. Uh, beyond some point, then we start talking about more fundamental kinds of research and how does that take place and, and what are the constraints and incentives that a country puts in place in order to reward that. Uh, you know, just taking Indian pharmaceuticals, it was known that there was a conflict between mostly Western. Pharmaceutical companies who were saying, "Well, India is just producing low-cost generic drugs. We're not responding to them in a way." And it had to do with what is the optimal time frame for a patent. Now, I didn't try to tackle that. I don't. I don't think the data was rich enough to be able to tackle it. But some have said that in a rapidly changing environment, which technology is evolving so quickly, is it reasonable to say that a uh, a patent should be valid for 30 plus years or something of like that sort? When in fact these things are being changed. Uh, I don't have an easy answer for that. Uh, All I can say is that if a patent has been granted, the question is, well, do other countries recognize that time horizon as a valid one? And in the case of Indian companies, they were able to come up with generic equivalents of a lot of these pharmaceutical products and producing them at low cost. And what gave them kind of moral leverage was that they're saying, well, we're going to produce these and make them available in developing countries, you know, And whereas you countries in the West have these prohibitive prices you're charging on them, and that's mostly for your own markets, not for the vast majority of the population, which in fact may not be the richest of the world, far from it and they were still eager to have it. And so it created kind of a, a market tension, if you will, between the idea of going low cost to imitation of imitation on a generic pathway compared to those that had the original uh, patents that were there. Um, if you tighten up that patent control to, to an extreme extent, uh, after a while, nobody's able to come in and make any innovations or they become artific- artificial derivations that they have for it, you know, looking for the slightest thing. It's a little bit like saying, Uh, Microsoft or or Apple, you know, how different is one uh, version, let's say, of their operating system different from the preceding one? Or how how different is an iPhone X generation, let's say, IS-13, or we have now, or the Model 13 comes to to 12? Uh, What they're trying to do is to capture some measure of patent protection uh, to recoup the investment that they have made. And that's the same claim that pharmaceutical companies say. They, They argue that the high cost of a new drug coming onto the market um, is essential to to underwrite the cost of the next generation for that. Um, as I say, it it's a conflict, and of course it becomes very problematic when you're in an age of COVID, for example, as we are now. And you're saying, well, what did you do? Well, I think the United States brokered some flexibility on that when they were able to expedite uh, the bringing of the Pfizer and the Moderna uh, uh, variations, the mRNA technology, uh, to the marketplace very quickly, and they were a little bit lax about the other kinds of things. So. Uh, when I say that you need property rights, you can't just say, well, property rights don't matter. That's not true. Because if property rights don't matter, I can guarantee the data will demonstrate that nobody will innovate. Because why Why should I do something if I can't capture you know, the results of the efforts that I've undertaken in that? So for a country like India or you know even China, at some point, they have to say, we do have to offer a measure of protection for genuine innovation that takes place in our economy. And if we don't do so, uh, we'll, we'll never move up the ladder, as you said, ago, you know, that, that technology ladder.
0: Yeah, you, you can sort of get stuck. Um, I, I want to just t- touch on the, the COVID vaccine uh, question, which is very topical. Um, exposed changing rules of the game yeah. <laughs> never really work. Uh-huh. Um, and so so you have to ask, if you were to say these companies uh, who have created vaccines have to now give it up, give it up, what will be their incentives in the next round? Uh, so the U.S. stance on that was very different from the EU stance. The EU was more uh, pure in the sense that patent rights should remain uh, as as uh, you know uh, continuing incentives for these companies to innovate. So changing rules afterward is not really a good practice, is it?
1: No, and it, it does raise the stakes, and it adds to more risk. It, it makes the, the next generation of uh, innovators demand a higher premium for their product because they fear it will be undermined in due course you know, by some intermediate stage of the patent life. Uh, but uh, let me put it this way. In the case of COVID, it's not just a matter of the immediate profit that goes to a, a firm. It's that there are... Repercussions, secondary effects that occur from that transaction. So, if we don't tackle, for example, COVID, the COVID pandemic on a global basis, who's to be immune from that after a while? I mean, you get a certain level of immunity, then you have some new variant. Now it's Omicron, it used to be Delta. Um, so, in this sense, uh, you can think of a pandemic or anything that fights a pandemic almost as a global public good, something that countries should be committing public resources to and not necessarily requiring that it reach the bottom line uh to satisfy investors now you have to satisfy investors to some extent and if if you totally undermine it yes they won't innovate at all but that's kind of a an in-between i think measure for all of this
0: yeah i mean the the alternative the right policy would be for countries to buy vaccines and supply uh, freely uh uh, to their populations and as you say it's a global problem so i think i mean we we are a little bit off track here but um you know i felt that it's very difficult to tackle this country by country uh, you, you have to get many many billions of people vaccinated before you before you actually you know uh, take care of the problem mm-hmm. uh, but we specialized country by country and it didn't seem
1: to have worked really no. well uh-huh uh-huh yeah well uh, as i say that paper back in 2007 was not based on COVID. it didn't even exist at that point And I was just simply looking at the the fundamental problem of innovation. How do you nurture it? Um, I I guess the one point that I would emphasize in all of this, because I think it it really rings true, is that when it is government that does the innovation, oftentimes they fall short for it because they're not necessarily better equipped to see what the future is like. And if I may, let me just give you one example of it, because I think I alluded to this a bit in my book Um, when the Internet was still in its almost Still born yet born. I wasn't even anywhere anywhere, anybody's conscious uh, awareness. Uh, I had been with a, a, a friend in France. He was a professor um, on the faculty at the University of Paris, and his son was a student at a, a very prestigious lycée, and I was just coming back from a trip in Africa at the time, and his son said, oh, let me think. I'm going to go check my grades. Uh, and so I said, well, what are you going to do with that? He said, oh, well, I have a Minitel. Well, see, Minitel was France's first answer. It was developed by France Telecom, of a small box. It looked almost like a, an early version of a Microsoft, uh, um, excuse me, a Macintosh computer. He was typing in a few numbers. He, he's basically dialing in like a DSL arrangement and he dials in and he gets his grades. And I said, gosh, there was nothing like that in the US at that time. And I thought, you know, the French are really on the cutting edge. It was fantastic. Well, what the French didn't do is uh, this was by France Telecom, which was a government enterprise at that time. And they didn't see any need to do anything more about it. Well, all of a sudden you have these cowboys like you know Bill Gates and coming up with you know, Microsoft and Explorer and these different uh, innovations for servers and so forth. That came to dominate the world because this curious pace of innovation on what would be the best way to have basically a, uh, a search engine that would enable you to gain access to it. And nobody had a formula in advance. Nobody could see how consumers were necessarily going to respond well, the French a few years ago, they abandoned Minitel, even though at one point they were on the cutting edge. So it's an example of when government may do something with the best of intentions. And at the time, Minitel was was outstanding, but it was not based on what I call the entrepreneurial instinct. It was not something that it was an engineering product and they didn't see the need to market this or to innovate it in a way that would be better for other generations. And that's one of the uh, you can call it either good or insidious things about capitalism. It's always in the process of refining upending uh innovating technologies to adapt to new needs as they perceive them sometimes creating these but other times responding to them
0: yeah yeah uh, we talked a little bit about your other paper managing risk in africa through institutional reform Yes. Uh, and again the issue here is uh african economies the, the per capita growth has been low uh and um, many countries have governance issues right so I don't know if anything has changed, uh, Philip. I, I haven't really followed. So this was 2008. Do you think last uh, 12 years things have improved in Africa?
1: There have been what I call sporadic signs that give a um, you know, measure for hope. And, and essentially, and this is based on, my, I, I've worked in some 30 countries in Africa over the years. I've traveled around. I've done it in a variety of capacities. Um, we have to look at the historical context. And, and, and someone in India could appreciate this as well, which is, If you have a colonial inheritance, if you you were one time the colonial property of a a mother country, you naturally resent that. You naturally want to have your own independence and so forth. So with the wave of independence that uh, came out of the late 50s, starting with, say, Ghana, you know, under Kwame Nkrumah, and then you go to these other leaders, um, you have countries that are saying, oh, let's be nation builders. Let's do this quickly. And the case of, I don't want to pick on Kwame Nkrumah as only one, but Let's let's rapidly industrialize. Let's do all this thing right away. Most of these things were statist decisions. When I say statist, I mean they were relying on government. And their argument was, well, under colonialism, we didn't have any private institutions. We didn't have equity markets, for example. Uh, We didn't have an infrastructure other than what was uh, geared towards, say, exports back to the mother country in some way. And so now what we want to do is develop our own technologies in a way. And it's the same weakness that I talked about in the case of – Looking at minitel, you know when it was just government driven, they could not foresee exactly how the market was going to work. there was or there were not enough uh, feedback mechanisms to say we need to adapt and change and so forth. Well, then, of course, you have a lot of civil unrest. The concept of political legitimacy came into fore, uh in many of these countries because they're saying, well, you're either puppets of some colonial neocolonial arrangement or you're operating in a way that really doesn't provide true development or they talk about corruption. In other words, the leadership have, cronies and it's uh, crony capitalism that's uh, prevailing. Uh, that was a common phrase you probably have heard of you know, many times coming across. Um, the positive signs are, though, that occasionally when you allow some innovation to take place and you, you have a government sort of limit but define clearly what its role is going to be, uh, you get spurs of growth that are taking place. And ironically, and now tragically, one country where that uh, was taking place was in Ethiopia, which is a country I've lived in and I know. Uh, to to some extent. And before this current civil war undermines much of the company's company's, uh, prospects, they were uh, developing from a very low level, a fairly high rate of growth of uh, per capita income. And why was that? It was because the state had chosen to step back from a series of military regimes. Hadi Selassie, the emperor, was overthrown in 1974. Then you had Mengistu, impose a rigid kind of Marxist top-down authoritarian regime and wage an unsuccessful war uh, in Eritrea, which he eventually lost and then he was overthrown, Mullah zanawi began these steps toward kind of stepping back and allowing the marketplace to play a greater role. And that began to spur some initiative. Now, it invited a lot of investment from China. China has been known for building these, what they're called, belt and road initiatives. In other words, it's an infrastructure investment. Um, The downside of that is that you wind up getting indebted and you have trouble with being able to pay it all off. So initially it it looks favorable, but I don't want to take away the fact that when infrastructure is developed, it facilitates a lot of other things taking place. And so Ethiopia was developing at a fairly rapid pace there for a while. Um, The other example I would cite was uh, Cote d'Ivoire, the Ivory Coast. Uh, uh, The Ivory Coast is a country that is primarily known as a coffee exporter. They produce uh, essentially the uh, Robusta kind of coffee, which is used in instant coffee. And their main competition for a number of years would be the Latin American producers like Colombia or Brazil, which had Arabica coffee. Uh, Ironically, Ethiopia also is a coffee exporter. It produces Arabica coffee. And what uh, Hufway Boigny, who was the president of uh, Cote d'Ivoire for a number of years, did is he basically was started off with a very humble level, said, look, We've got a product that can compete, and all we want to do is just have access to the marketplace. And for a while, Ivory Coast was one of the most rapidly growing countries in West Africa, had one of the highest levels of per capita income, and they were getting into a lot of innovative technologies: uh, educational television, educational radio, a lot of things like that. that again got undermined. Why? Because of civil unrest in the country, after Huweay Buia, you had governance issues that have been still with the Ivorians even today) <laughs>
0: Yeah, I I was wondering, Philip, I I don't know. I mean, I haven't really thought about this. Do you think Africa is a bit fragmented? Um, In other words, would they benefit from some of these countries getting together into trading blocks like uh, the European Union or something like that? Uh, Do you think that kind of a scale will allow them to get more stable?
1: Well... I would say yes and no. Uh, first of all, uh, the Francophone countries of West Africa use a common currency. So it's like the euro, but it was there even before the euro was created. But most of the trade that these countries had was export driven. other words, on a, a, a same lateral basis or laying longitudinal basis. These countries basically had comparable products that are competing perhaps even with each other. So The idea of having lower tariff barriers, which they have done, the African Union started off essentially uh, as an economic agency and then took on this political responsibility about governing conflict and trying to control conflict in various countries. Um, Yes, it is a step forward, but there is not such a a range of differences in the profile of uh, your economic advantage, so to speak, that you have. That necessarily means it will produce miraculous growth. But uh, to the extent that these countries can develop more cooperative relationships, the answer is yes. By all means, they should be doing it. Uh, I thought that when you have, say, the African Union stepping in and trying to mediate uh, a resolution to the conflict in the Sudan, for example, just one of these, or you know, in other areas where you have Africa peacekeeping troops, I think that's a positive um, move in the right direction.
0: Yeah. So, so you have a book uh, that came out uh, recently, risk and the state how economics and neuroscience shape political legitimacy to address geopolitical, environmental, and health risks for sustainable governance. So so what's the main message in the book?
1: Well, the main message, I probably should have had a shorter title. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the main message is essentially part of what we've been talking about in our conversation so far, which is to say how governments organize and respond to the presence of various types of risks has a great bearing, on basically, on the legitimacy of a government, as we can all say. But that oversimplification I tried to break down, I wanted to unpack that, so to speak, and say, well, what do uh, economics tell us about how governance e- affects political legitimacy, and how does neuroscience do it? Well, you know, neuroscience has been around, at least in the social sciences, for some time. It's behavioral economics, it's behavioral finance. And essentially, what it's doing is providing a counterpoint to the paradigm of the utterly rational individual, homo economicus. You know that you, all your decisions are rational. And uh, you know when I would be teaching courses over the years, I love to cite the little uh, trope about two economists walking down a street, and one sees a twenty-dollar bill and says to the other, "Look, there's a twenty-dollar bill. Pick it up." And everyone says, "No, that's not a twenty-dollar bill. If it was, somebody would have picked it up already." You know. So it's it's just, there was the assumption of extreme rationality, which confounded a lot of um issues and questions in economics so what behavioral economics has done is taking into account for that and uh so my point was that if you look at what uh economics has to say on this subject you can start and say well let's take the simple adam smith paradigm you know wealth of nations that uh you know let's fight against mercantilism which is state-guided intervention in the economy allow markets to make a decision well that still has a lot of proof and a a lot of resonance. Uh, but as, as time has gone on, as research has evolved, what we're discovering is that in order for that to work well, uh, what you have to have are the conditions of a competitive economy. And the conditions are you can't have monopolistic arrangements, for example, and you can't have informational asymmetries. In other words, um, you know, years ago, uh, the, uh, Gary Akerlof got a Nobel Prize for writing a rather prosaic sounding article called The Market for Lemons, uh, which was buying used vehicles. In the market, and uh, there's a tendency to undervalue used products in a way. So, so how, how do we get more informational symmetry? Well, that's a role for our property institutions and how we develop it. In other words, and can it be done in market terms? You know, well, well, how does a used car seller make a convincing argument? Well, the answer is, I'll offer you a, a guarantee for this. You know, even though this is a used vehicle product, I'm going to certify its its serviceability and and operational characteristics for a designated period of time. So warranties help to do that. Uh, But in many cases, you have tried and untrue products against which you have uh, a lot of risk and uncertainty. You just don't know how they're going to work. So what what economics has to bring to this conversation is that there are certain uh, functions that the state can perform and should be performing to help markets work. And so, you know, one of the things that I took up in this book was um, the age-old history about looking at Competition, for example, and and how is competition affecting or interacting with risk? And the thing I I cite is, uh, well, the corporation, the concept of the corporation, which we, I think we generally uh, credit the Dutch in the 17th century when they had their first successful stock exchange in basically 1601, uh, attracts investors because you have a separation of ownership from uh, the responsibility for something, liability. So you buy a, a share of stock. If it goes up, you win. If it goes down, you lose. There, there's no other you know, mechanism for that. But by having shared risk but between the owners and the investors, uh, it tends to attract a lot of capital formation. Well, that was an important innovation. So the question is how we develop institutions uh, to manage it. Today, we even have limited liability corporations. And you can have partners in a medical practice and setting an LLC. These are just what I call passive institutions that are designed to manage risk and They're an important innovation, but we need a legal system to back them up, which we do. We create laws. So that's a function that government steps in to perform to enable risk to be managed in a reasonable way. And once you get excessive risk out of line or something, that's what it calls for greater intervention. And our perception of risk varies over time. Well, let me bring in neuroscience. Many of our perspectives about whether government is doing enough or too little has to do with how our brain is perceiving phenomena, in this case, uh, economic phenomena. So, when Ben Bernanke, who was a professor of economics at Princeton University, had studied Milton Friedman and his book on monetary history of the United States, uh, here he was at the seat of power in the 2008 financial crisis, 2007, 2009. And Milton Friedman uh, had not passed away not so long before, you know, or about that period of time. And so, Um, Bernanke had studied the Great Depression as had Milton Friedman. And so he said, uh, Uncle Milty, that's how he's known, uh, we we have learned the lessons of the Great Depression, and we're not going to make that mistake again. What he was talking about is that in 1929, with the stock market crash, the Federal Reserve, which had been created in 1913, but at that point had power to control interest rates, for example, and credit, uh, decided to raise interest rates at a time when they should have done just the opposite. And the point was, and this is echoed in John Kenneth Galbraith's uh, The Great Depression interpretation, it was, quote, speculation that, that was the cause of it. So if we just ring that out, uh, we'll solve the problem. Uh, what Friedman did in this monetary history, he wrote this for the uh, National Bureau of Economic Research. It was called A Monetary History of the United States, 1857 to 1960, and it came out in 1963. He traced the supply of money as controlled by the Federal Reserve and interest rates, and he said, Convincingly, that the Federal Reserve should not have raised interest rates when the markets began to collapse. Well, what did Ben Bernanke do when he was, you know, some 30 plus years later, many years later? What is he doing? He's basically saying, we're going to stimulate the economy when we see equity markets and housing markets prices going down. And that's precisely what he did. And so, you know, the uh, ARRA, you know, the American uh, Recovery Act that was passed under the Obama administration in 2009 was deliberately an in intention to use what came to be known as quantitative easing, which was a measure of having the Federal Reserve say, buy up treasure securities to create greater liquidity. Turns out that that was the thing that saved the U.S. economy in that period of time from having what could have been an even worse event than the great uh, stock market crash and the subsequent depression. I like to point out, and I'm not making that in the book so directly, I like to say that somebody like Ben Bernanke, in my view, is an unsung hero He's an unsung hero because he forestalled something that could have been an absolute and utter disaster. But what media tend to cover is, you know, well, what did you do here? That sort of thing. You know, it's not, you're not able to observe the pain that would have been inflicted had you done nothing. So he tends to be thought of as, okay, you're a steward and you did your job in some way, but I don't think he's as appreciated as I think he should be in terms of what he did, because he steered the Federal Reserve in the most judicious way to avert an even worse downturn.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting. So, so your argument is that there are roles that the government can play
1: yes.
0: uh, to make systems better. And you know, I was thinking about you. You mentioned information and risk. So, when I think about the modern economy, almost everything that we do is information. I could argue a pharmaceutical product, an autonomous car a smart home, it's all information. There there is no product um, that is informationless anymore. So the currency for the economy is information. So then the broader question is, do you see, or what role do you see for the government to play in sort of information intermediation in a system that's largely driven by information?
1: Well, I think what they could do is just set clear rules once again that will back up intellectual property rights. I, beyond that, I don't think it should do more. You know, one, I find one of the things that's really ironic today is people are beating up on Twitter and, and Microsoft uh, because they're not doing enough to get rid of, you know, misinformation and so forth. You know, in some other country, it's the government that controls that misinformation to it. I mean, ironically, in the United States, what you have, in effect, are private firms being held accountable as though they are quasi-judicial institutions. That's how they're thought of. Because, you know, somebody utters something, Donald Trump utters something, and it may or may not be true, and there's no cross-checking of that and so forth. Uh, I think we have to give credit to uh, these private information portals, so to speak, uh, to be able to find a judicious way. But to the extent you expect them to become governors, then— that's almost a form of fascism because under fascism, you have private ownership, but you're executing the command of government and you got to draw a line there somewhere. You have to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. how much should they um, be obligated to uh, communicate or, or uh, basically uh, survey and censor at any one time? So I, I, we're, we're in murky waters when it comes to how to respond to that one.
0: But one issue I see is the market power issue, Philip. So, you know, our... Um Antitrust laws—I um, don't know how effective they have been. Uh, there are six countries, I'm sorry, six uh, companies that hold about one third of the market capitalization of S&P 500 today. Yep. and you could easily make an argument: uh, the large search company, search is really a utility and should really be regulated on a return basis, just like we do electric utilities. So there is a market power issue with this information companies that a lot of people are worried
1: about. So what do you you think about that? Um, I will think that I I would ask ask anyone who who is looking at that issue to pay attention to a historical experience Here's the example. Uh, You know, the great decision about uh, uh, Standard Oil Company as one example of that. When when it broke it up, uh, people may not recognize that John D. Rockefeller became richer after the breakup of the Supreme Court decision of 1911 using the the uh, Sherman Antitrust Act. Um, when you have government going to apply vigorous antitrust, usually they don't have an idea of what's going to be the result of that. The standard paradigm, the mental paradigm that we work against, is more buyers and sellers, the better. And in general, that, that's a reasonable principle. But the other thing that I would add into this equation is that innovation changes it. Years ago, we used to have serious, profound arguments about the automobile industry in the United States. And we had laws that were on the books that were going to break up them, that we were going to use antitrust to break up General Motors and Ford and Chrysler. Well, what are these countries today? They've become dwarfs relative to the size of the market and the number of international firms. I mean, so you look at what Japan has done. Ironically, one of the best things that would be a tempering factor would be to have more open access uh, to information portals, so to speak. And, And I think that's, in a way, that becomes available. I mean, I don't know what the, your own personal, how you spend time to gather information. I, and I'm not going to say uh, that I'm a genius by any means, but I will tell you that I will read things across the political spectrum and then arrive at my own opinions. I, I don't, I, in other words, I don't try to operate in a silo where I want some real self-reinforcing mechanism that feeds my own preconceived notions. I mean, that's one of the neuroscience phenomena. We, we tend to gravitate toward things to reinforce our preconceived ideas. So if you're a conservative, you're tending to migrate toward Fox News because you think they have the received wisdom, and you think that CNN and MSNBC are communists. I mean, I'm exaggerating here, you know. And conversely, if you are on the left end of the spectrum, you look to CNN and MSNBC to uphold America's virtues, and uh, Fox News, you know, they're just a bunch of—they'll uh, call them fascists or some other kind of. Thing. This is an absurd dialogue that we maintain with this. The answer is look at all of them, look at other sources. Um, so. I don't think that there is something that says, you know, one, these countries, ha- companies have to be broken up. The other thing I would add to it is that competition will probably undermine them. You know, ironically, you know, there was a time when IBM was the dominant player. And there was this little college dropout by the name of Steve Jobs. And he said, I got a better idea. You know, so well, Steve Wozniak he comes up with something called the Apple computer. And they upended the mainframe computer industry. It was then dominated by IBM. Well, Ramsey Clark was the attorney general back in the heydays of Lyndon Johnson, where he launched that suit against IBM. Well, it became totally ridiculous after a while because we moved from mainframe computing to, to, to mini computers and then to desktop computers. And now we have everything on our iPhone. I mean, so uh, that technology innovation process undermines the competitive advantage that a firm tends to have over time. That's hard to see that right now. When you say, but, but look at what you know, uh, Microsoft and these other companies have, they've got a lock on it. Well, they face competition, and it, it could be something that will draw other entrants and developing you know, some d- different innovative product. And, and we see that out there.
0: Yeah. I, um, I mean, I don't have strong opinions on this, but I just want to put this out there to get your perspective. So when a company has a very large amount of excess cash, on their balance sheet, mm-hmm. let's say 500 million or 500 billion in some cases, right. um, they can hire tens and thousands of lawyers mm-hmm. and manufacture patents. Um, and you know, a two-people company out of a university can hire 10,000 lawyers.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: are we coming to a regime where excess cash in large companies will reduce innovation
1: and competition uh, what i think is uh I, i'm looking at what i call a dynamic theory of competition so you have to look at a firms not just their cash flow but also their rate of return net net of of uh, taxes and interest and subsidies and all the other things and uh, if an industry or a firm in an industry demonstrates persistently that they're earning a premium rate of return for which there's no corresponding innovation by which they might be rewarded you will invite in, in, innovators to come in who have nothing to do with this and then they will compete with you, and, they'll, and they may be on the same scale. They may not be in the same industry, but they can bring the wherewithal of the skills and talents and human capital to take you on in a way. What example do I cite? I cite Elon Musk and Tesla. I mean, even the, the level of competition that we have today, here was a visionary, not modest by anybody's measure, but he said, I'm gonna reinvent how we think about automobiles, you know? And it's, it's remarkable that he's come out of nowhere. I just saw a number of, what was it yesterday? that they're talking about making 600,000 Teslas a year in China alone. Where where were the other firms and all this stuff? And so the, these firms may have excess cash at any one time, I and mean, they may not be on the verge of bankruptcy, but are they taking prudential risks as they should be taking is the question, and they, they may not be. So having yeah. excess cash is not just a matter of lawyers, because ultimately the lawyers um, are valued on a, t- a, a present value basis by what happens to the revenue stream and the profitability of the firm.
0: Yeah, I mean there are two defensive mechanisms. There. One is what this large company has been doing: when they find an innovator, they just go buy them, yes, yeah. and incorporate that into the into the company. Right. And uh, in the case of Tesla, one can forget that a large part of uh, a uh, automobile uh, or, um, electric uh, automobile is subsidy. Uh, it's you know it's ten to fifteen percent of taxpayer money right, right. going into that product. Yeah. and so you know Elon Musk might be really brilliant, uh, but um, a lot of that is taxpayer money that we can't forget that.
1: Well, that that's an example of how government steers how we manage risk. Uh, I mean to to draw in other words, I, I'm not saying all oh, that's justified is what I'm trying to get at. Uh, when you look at how do we have the next generation of space exploration? Well, when NASA was the, the only the only player, you know, there might have been Soviets, you know, with with the cosmonauts, for example, and, and uh, the space race at the time. Uh, John F. Kennedy said in, in 1961, "We'll put somebody on the moon at the end of the decade." Well, we did, but after that, you know, how does it become sustainable? Well, the answer was leave innovation to the private sector. So that's when you eventually see coming out of this, SpaceX and these other. Uh, innovators saying, well, we have a, you know, a new delivery vehicle or so forth. So we had the space shuttle. That was an intermediate step where we allowed private participation because people were saying, I'll pay for this payload because I'm in this field and I needed scientific results in a, in a zero gravity environment or something of that sort. So the space station makes sense, but increasingly it makes sense to be sustainable by private investment um, to be able to do it. So it's a question of how much fundamental research should government be directing. Now in yeah. the case of batteries and Tesla, um, these are relatively known technologies. if If you move up the cost curve, uh, uh, the efficiency of batteries, you know you move beyond the lead acid to the lithium hydride batteries. you know you move up, you get rid of efficiency, but they're more expensive. So the question is, how do you control the cost? Well, I think it's great that you've got somebody like Elon Musk uh, who's committing, even with the subsidies he's got, uh, to developing more efficient batteries. that is the that's our electric future, so to speak, and it's how we're going to move If we all the stuff that we talk about in terms of windmills you know using uh, uh, solar power, those one that you need converter technology. you need storage battery storage to make all of those things work.
0: Yeah, I also f- felt, Philip, there was a recent case that uh, it, it's clearly a good thing for the space administration to have private companies involved. But there was a recent case where they had you know just handed out four billion dollars to one company without any competitive bidding and <laughs> anything like that. So, government um, allocators of resources uh, at the government level really should be thinking about competition very systematically, right? Like one company could be great, its in, its uh, founder could have been brilliant, but competition is quite important.
1: Absolutely, I, I agree. Uh, it's, it's one thing that where I'm leading to when I'm about how markets function is that you need markets that are as transparent as possible. Now, if you're a firm, you know, your, your nighttime fantasy dream is I want to be the controller of this. I want to be the empire of the universe. Uh, but against that is society's well-being, the, so- the social wheel that we expect out of a market innovation of some kind. And so what we have to do is find kind of a balance between that and, uh, you know, allow various participants to come in. I mean, look at the competition we had in the case of, uh, what was it beta versus VHS technology when we, we started having recording video technology coming in. Customers made a decision. They decided the future. They said, well, yes, Betamax is definitely superior in quality, but they don't have the, the time length on them. So people just opted for a trade off between yeah. lower quality, but greater storage density uh, uh, of whatever the video would be at any one time. And so then we move around. So, should government make those decisions or should we allow the market to do it? And I think we had the wisdom of allowing the market to work it through rather than having government do it.
0: Yeah, so um, I, I want to touch on a few more things in the in the book. So you, you have a chapter here, state formation in space and time. Mm-hmm. Qu- uh, quantitative measures of states. What, what do you mean by that?
1: I'm looking at the size of an economy that exists, the, the range of the industries that they have, the dynamics of it, how it grows over time, and then looking also at the institutions that affect that structure. Uh, So uh, that's a rather truncated way of uh, addressing the fact that you had different governance models over time when economies were evolving. So, you know, the Industrial Revolution coincided with a a diminution of power of centralized governments. Uh, It was a time when the idea of absolute monarchy was no longer in favor. So if you say, well, you know, Great Britain started, it was a pioneer with the Industrial Revolution. That's true. But by that time, what you had was uh, a parliamentary system in which the power of the monarch was significantly reduced. I mean, Queen Victoria... Yeah, she ruled for a long period of time, but how much power did she have? She did not have a lot of power. You know, A lot of people tend to think, oh, well, it's Queen Victoria. Look, that's when the, empire, the British Empire was created in the world. There were a lot of other players that had a lot to do with that. So it's a matter of how they, whether it's Palmerston or Gladstone or somebody else who was in power at the time, made decisions that the monarch just simply subsumed over. So it gets us to the question of whether, let's say, democratic institutions are important, to a political legitimacy, and the point that I'm making here is that there are different kinds of notions of political legitimacy at work today. And what I'm trying to do is have a more a broader basis of that in the West. By the West, I'm talking about West European and say uh, North American institutions. We tend to take democracy for granted. Sometimes it's viewed in an arrogant way, even when we say, "Well, who are you to tell us, you know, about how good democracy is and so forth?" Um, when I give an counter example, I, I look at a country like China which, after Mao Zedong passed away, Deng Xiaoping comes to power. He starts devolving power, opening up markets. China's growth begins to take off. Then you have Tiananmen Square in 1989. And so what you have is an example of military imposing censorship and political repression, arresting people and so forth, and detaining them. And they basically have a Faustian bargain. It's a social contract of sorts that they define for themselves what political legitimacy is. And it's this, we will produce wealth, we will produce higher levels of income, and we will reduce poverty in China. But we will not do so with an open democratic tradition that you and the West have taken for granted. So we resent anything that you think you are going to tell us about how we should govern ourselves. It's our country to govern. Well, that's one concept of political legitimacy. As long as the Chinese government delivers, people are less inclined to embrace, you know, all oh, let's great, let's have freedom of speech, let's have, you know, the Declaration of Rights or something like that. So what we see is this paradox that China's growth has been extraordinary, and then you have basically clamping down on Hong Kong activists who wanted, they came out of the British parliamentary tradition who wanted to have more democracy. You have them coming down on basically the Uyghurs, uh, who are Muslim. It's a small minority, but they view that they view Tibet as their province. It's one of their areas of Controlled, which has tensions as you well can understand with India because both areas have a competing interests in that zone. So, um, China's vision of it is not embraced in, in, in some universal declaration of human rights. Um, uh, they find that strange to have somebody reading that. So, what, uh, well, that's not how we govern ourselves.
0: Yeah, the, the irony for me, uh, is that democracies are quite fragile, right? I mean, um, we were pretty close to losing (laughs) democracy just a few months ago. Um, And so in an ironic way, the non-democratic systems appear more stable, for better or worse, uh, whereas democratic systems have higher risk of essentially just collapsing in some ways.
1: Which brings us back to this notion of uh, how risk affects our notions of political legitimacy and the point that i'm making is that if you have a long history in which you had democratic upheaval in your society of course you can be anxious if Donald Trump you know is the the chief architect with a January 6th insurrection and you want to blame all everything on him and all that kind of stuff or you can step back and say well you know there are other ways in which we can define this and so we look to our legal systems we look into our traditions that provide protections uh, for human rights and you know, we view um, the Congress, the congressional building in Washington, is almost sacrosanct is one of our valued institutions that we must protect in some way. Now, I agree with you that democracy is fragile, and there's nothing that guarantees that it will survive or that it will go on. I mean, you can go back to the Roman Republic and say, well, it was a a and Then what happened? Julius Caesar comes along, and you have basically Brutus being killed and dictatorships ensuing. So democracy is a process, and you have to work at it. Uh, And you have to have a tolerance uh, for for differences in opinion. And not all societies have that. Um, I would link that back to my neuroscience perspective to perceptions of risk. Uh, The Chinese uh, culture is traditionally risk averse. It's known for that. And so they they face a contradiction of how to produce wealth in China, which they've tried to do by imitating uh, to a great extent and exporting, Um, At the same time, you know, providing uh, flexibility where where, where China can evolve its own institutions and to become more open and accountable. Um, So that's the challenge that I think we have. But I I wouldn't say that uh, democracy is finished by any means. I say I think we always have, if you will, a rebound that can occur for that. And uh, right now the U.S. is in a process of self-examination, you know, even somehow if Donald Trump is held more directly accountable for the events of January 6th. That doesn't remove the conditions that may have made possible why that occurred. (coughs) And so uh, I I
0: have fantasies of direct democracy, Philip. You know, I I feel like the representative form of democracy has found its course. Now we have technology. We could we could move into direct democracy. The biggest problem with democracy today are the politicians, uh, are are the representatives that we put in place to make policies. They either don't understand it, or or uh, they're basically crooks. <laughs> put it that way, well, uh, which, which,
1: which, which is a big risk. There's a lot of argument, but let me throw this out to, for consideration, which is to say, I told you about information asymmetries. And so the question is, do you have a citizenry that is sufficiently well-informed to make these, what I call, deck democracy decisions in a way? Um, you know, there, there's evidence that a lot of voters are not interested uh, in elections, they become very passive, so voter participation rates are not as high as they would should be. And so what we have is a situation where they seem perfectly willing to delegate it to um, those who are elected. Well, yes, if you don't hold those elected officials accountable, so yes, they're going to start messing with the chestnuts that are in the fire there on their own. And um, so we, I have been persuaded. I, I've been drawn, let me say, to the notion of direct democracy. I, I had this fantasy, maybe you share the same one, uh, being able to sit at my computer and vote, number one, and number two, um, approval reject legislation, uh, you know, kind, and kind of you know, diminish the role of the elected representative. And I have points like that in the latter part of my book. I talk about some ways that we can uh, go forward. And one of the main themes that I tried to emphasize is that in an age of uh, hyper partisanship, in an age of great suspicion and skepticism about government, we need to restore a measure of trust in government, which is contrary to a lot of people's impulses. A lot of people think of government as the evil, incarnate, because it's corrupt and all these other kinds of things. But you need a measure of that, uh, even though, let's say, if we were to have a direct democracy, because decisions have to be made, resources are allocated, taxes are collected, spending is made. The average citizen simply doesn't have that level of sophisticating. I'm not saying they're stupid. I'm saying that the time and effort that you or I as an individual citizen would, would require to be knowledgeable about all the legislation that is out there, we'd do nothing else except study it. We would be in politics ourselves, so to speak, in terms of evaluating the legislation. So I think we'll, we'll, we'll stop short of a direct democracy because we'll still have that you know, level of information. But my point was, through greater transparency, uh, I think we can restore a measure of what I call uh, guarded trust. I like to quote ronald reagan you know when he was talking about the negotiations over nuclear weapons with the russia he said trust but verify i think that's a good attitude trust government but verify it i mean how do you how do you do that so i'll just give you one of several examples that i have which is that i don't think you can eliminate uh self-interested political contributions from uh, helping to shape elections and people will always do that and that's because people have a different intensity of preferences about what we should do to elect somebody Some people are indifferent, as I said a while ago. Some people are passionately interested in something, maybe deeply self-interested also. right? That affects my business, my line, and so forth. Um, The point I've been making is that you can't do what, say, an organization like the Common Cause used to tout years ago, if you think of um, McCain-Feingold, for example, which was to limit uh, how you would fund elections and so forth. My answer is it's a beast that will not go away. So my answer is you cannot... If you want to have a, a democracy, you cannot hide behind a political action committee. You cannot hide behind corporate donations. So I, I think the Citizen United decision was terrible in the sense that it enabled people to shield their contributions. My answer is, if you're going to have somebody tell me how my resources are allocated, I want to know who gave the money. I want to know where it came from. Let's, let's use that. So I think the media falls short by not tracking that uh, more carefully. And so my answer is, greater transparency is one of the greatest um, catalysts we can have to improving the measure of trust that we need for governance.
0: Yeah. So in conclusion, Philip, let me ask you sort of a broad question. You you have looked at a lot of these um, different areas of the world uh, in aggregate terms. Uh, Where do you think the world is heading? Uh, Let me sort of refine the question. So we see uh, you know, some cases, we have European Union, we have large trading blocks, we have countries coming together. Uh, we have in some cases, countries moving apart. We had this COVID-19 shock, and we see large countries have been not that good in counteracting the shock, whereas small countries have been like New Zealand, South Korea, Germany. Um, so so where do you think, so if we can if look forward 10, 15, 20 years, are we going to get more fragmented or are we going to come together into larger blocks? Where do you think it'll end up?
1: I think blocks will evolve. They, they, they will morph into various forms. Uh, you know, With the European Union, uh, you may remember a famous quip that once was said by Henry Kissinger, now that you have the European Union, who do I call? In other words, who do I call the head of that? You know, so you, you have nominal heads of the European Union, but you have these differences. And so there's an impulse in these days the people that gravitate gravitate toward specific religious, ethnic, or other characteristics to define legitimacy of the state. And that's a failing recipe, in my opinion. In other words, I see it tragically in China. They go after the Uyghurs. I see it in the tensions, let's say, in India, where you've got basically different minorities that are there, and they're not enjoying their full rights. Um, and the United States, people want to say, well, America is a white Christian nation run by white men. I mean, it, 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 this is not... A successful formula, I'm sorry, just will not work. So ironically, I'm optimistic in the sense that sooner or later you come to the realization that there's a universal principle of governance, which is inclusion, accountability, and democratic electability. And that rule actually augurs well, I think, for everyone. And where that's happened, it has facilitated economic growth because it gives greater flexibility to to agents, if you will, on the stage, whether they're economic or even political in this case. So I remain stupidly optimistic, I think, perhaps. So I'll put it that way, or doggedly from how I've seen the evolution of trade. I mean, you, you look at what China has done. I, I laud how the Chinese did raise millions of people, hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. And we can't deny that. I mean, we should just take that into consideration and say, where would we be if China hadn't done that? You don't have to celebrate what the Indians have done by basically improving agricultural productivity. They've reduced the risk of famine, which used to be devastating. Uh, in India. So these are signs of hope, not signs of uh, despair, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, but, but I think you make this point all over the book, um, the necessary condition um, are institutions yes. and property rights yes. and justice uh, system. Uh, and so, so the question in my mind is, are these things we take for granted? Could they all go away very quickly? And, and you rewind time back 300 years by a singular person one
1: morning. They could. Yes, they could. I, I didn't say that democracy is, is solid and it's not under threat. It is under threat. There's no question, in my opinion. And so when, when I, I know it sounds simplistic, but if I invoke the idea of an independent judiciary, for example, and property rights, you can go further in that direction and, and say, well, what do you mean by an independent judiciary? What are you upholding? So you get into the questions then of things like, well, how universal and valid is capital punishment? You know, with now the here the Taliban have come back to power in Afghanistan, and they're reportedly summarily executing people with no trial by jury, none of those things that we would assume would have taken root somehow in Afghanistan. But obviously, it's not. Um, so the idea is that those institutions are important, but they become fundamentally effective only to the extent that which we have transparency and accountability. So when you put down and you have uh, press censorship and you're executing journalists. You were doing yourself in as a country, Um, whoever's doing it.
0: Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Philip. Thanks so much for spending time with me.
1: Thank you very much. I enjoyed it.